Hi, I'm Judy Frazier, president and founder of We The Kids. We The Kids puts God back into America's history. Listening to We The Kids radio show will inspire you and your kids to have a positive American identity, clear direction, and a powerful purpose for your life. Thank you for listening. Welcome to We The Kids Radio Show for kids from 8 to 108. I am Arch Hunter, a father, a husband, and an historian. And I'm Lydia Nuttall, a mom and executive board member for We The Kids and author of Forgotten American Stories, Celebrating America's Constitution. And later on in the show, we're going to hear from the We The Kids Liberty Players. The mission of We The Kids is to put God back into America's stories, to help American kids be proud to be an American, to love and defend America's Constitution, and learn the principles of freedom that establish unprecedented freedom in our country so that they can preserve freedom in America. And that is so important. That's why we're doing this show. So we're glad you're listening. Today's forgotten story, Lydia, is why did your ancestors come to America? Most of us have ancestors that came here from another country, I guess, unless you're Native American. But we want to discuss today, why did our ancestors leave their native country to come to America? And did they find what they were looking for? So I know last show, we learned about Ellis Island, which is in the harbor by New York City and New Jersey, and that 40% of all Americans can trace their roots to Ellis Island, and that 12 million immigrants entered the United States. Through Ellis Island between 1892 and 1954. That's the time frame we're looking at. And that Ellis Island was a place where there was an organized process to ensure that immigrants coming into our country were healthy, meaning they're not bringing a contagious disease into America, that they weren't criminals, that they had a destination to go to, and often a sponsor. And I have a story to share with you about that, about a sponsor, about my own grandmother who came to America through Ellis Island from Finland. And then Ellis Island people had to have enough money to get to where they wanted to go. So that's what we're going to be sharing today. So back to the sponsorship. Well, there's a time period in America where you had to have a sponsor, meaning someone that was waiting for you there at Ellis Island so that we knew that each immigrant had a place to stay and someone that would be responsible for their maintenance while they're trying to get established roots, you know, find a place to stay, get a job, etc., to get settled into American way of life. And my grandmother was living in Finland, and that's that was her native country. She was one of 16 kids, if you can believe that, mm. uh, one of 16 kids. And she came here as a 21-year-old. She left her family behind, her siblings behind. 
everything that she had ever known behind because she was really excited about the opportunities that awaited for her in America because opportunities in Finland were limited. And something, Arch, I have to share with you that probably you don't know. My dad was in the military when I was growing up and we had the opportunity to live in Germany for three years. And while we were living in Germany, uh, we had the opportunity to tour all over Europe during our vacations And my mother is Finnish. Her mom and dad are both from Finland. She's an American citizen, and her parents both became naturalized citizens of America. But we went to Finland to see my aunts. There were many of my aunts were still living. And I had an aunt, and this is in the late 1970s, an aunt who still harvested hay for her cattle by horse-drawn cart. And I remember as a kid using those pitchforks and, you know, those stakes that stick up out of the ground and you probably have seen them in paintings. We don't do hay like that anymore, but they would stack the hay after it was cut down to dry. They'd stack it on top of these stakes that were poking up vertically from the ground. So you have literally these haystacks. And my job and my brother's job was to take our pitchforks and lift the hay up off the stake and put it onto the horse-drawn wagon. So that's in the late 1970s. That's how they were still harvesting their hay, one of my aunts was. So my grandmother didn't want that kind of life. She wanted something a lot better. And that's why she came to America on a steamship and had to come to America through Ellis Island. And the part about the sponsorship is her parents had shown her a picture of her uncle who lived in New York and made her memorize the picture. This is the man that's going to be picking you up at Ellis Island. You can imagine as a 21-year-old, not knowing a lick of English, not knowing anybody, and you are waiting for this man that you've only seen in a picture to come and get you. Well, She was waiting and waiting and waiting at Ellis Island for her uncle, her sponsor, to come and identify her and bring her to her new home. But he was kept at work. He was detained at work. So he sent his wife to pick her up. And because of this unknown change in plans, my grandmother, her her name was Jenny, she refused to leave Ellis Island with his wife because to her it was a complete stranger and (laughs) waited um, more hours until her uncle finally arrived. And uh, she lived with them in New York City until she found employment in New Jersey, working as a maid for a wealthy family in New Jersey. And she learned English over time. And my grandfather also came here to America from Finland. And he came here for the educational opportunities that were here in America. And like I mentioned, he became a naturalized American citizen. So that's the story of how I got here to be in America is because of my grandmother and grandfather immigrating to America from Finland. So your grandmother, who had 15 siblings at age 21, came on a ship by herself to Ellis Island. Absolutely. I I can't imagine uh, those of you who are listening who are 21 or, 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 you know, in your late teens. Could you imagine leaving America right now and going to a completely different country, not knowing anybody and just, you know, maybe a few bags that you can carry? (laughs) You know, that's all, all you could bring with you. And, you know, what do you do? Where are you going to start? Where are you going to spend the night? What's their currency like? Do you have enough money or do you have any money? 
<laughs> so I, I really can't imagine, but it just shows me how much she really wanted to come to this land to leave everything that she knew behind and especially her family. Can you imagine leaving your family behind? Maybe some of you can imagine leaving your family behind <laughs> and would be excited to leave your family behind. But for her, it, it had to have been hard. So, and to uh, hers isn't the only story. I just can't imagine the courage and strength that it took for a young lady of 21 years old to leave her family, to leave her country, to have to learn a whole new language, to come here because she saw that she had a better opportunity here in America. What a tremendous amount of courage that took for her to do that. And what's amazing is she's not the only one. As we mentioned, there were 12 million immigrants that entered the United States through Ellis Island in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and more come even today. How many of us have read about the refugees from war-torn countries overseas that have come to America? Again, most likely not knowing English, uh, many of them without the basics, no home, where are they going to get food? Are they going to like the food here? Because it's different than most likely what they had in their own country. Many with the clothes that they just have on their backs. So that story of my grandmother, I'm sure many of you, if you research your own family history and your own, how did my ancestors get here? What are their stories? And why did they come here to begin with? What were they looking for? For my grandmother, it was to find better opportunities than a farm life. For my grandfather, it was to get an education. There's another story from, I interviewed the principal of the middle school where my son was going at the time, and his family came from Italy and remember having gone through Ellis Island also to get to America. And uh, I'm just going to quote this because this is pretty fascinating. This is in his own words, describing what his uncle George de Gatano told him about his experience coming to America. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So he says, throughout the late 1890s, all of my relatives, including my grandfather, oh, I guess it was a grandfather, Carlo Antonio Matteo, booked passage on ships from Italy to America by the cheapest way they could get here. They traveled in the bottom of the ship the steerage section, which meant they slept in hammocks and used a hole in the floor for a toilet, the stench from the sewage, seasickness, and so many unwashed bodies in a small area below deck was horrible, but they were going to America. The first view of America coming into the harbor was of the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island nearby. The statue meant freedom and untold opportunities. Ellis Island was a happy and sad place, as one would come into this mammoth building with many stairs and rooms. Many languages were spoken, and the only one my family understood was Italian. Sometimes names were changed here. Sometimes shoelace hooks were used to flip back the eyelids of the immigrants to see if they had the dreaded eye disease called trichoma. Sometimes families had to make decisions about returning back on the ship to their home country because of being denied entrance into America if one failed or a physical or a legal examination. Fortunately, all my family made it through Ellis Island. When I asked my uncle George de Gatano why they came, he quickly responded that they were told that the streets were paved with gold. 
I quickly laughed and said that he must have been disappointed. He began yelling in his half English, half Italian, and responded with the following, Look at this house. Look at the pasta, wine, meat, fruit, bread, all on a table that belongs to us. Your aunt and cousins can walk down the street without fear. I have a job. I can provide a place for my family to live, and the kids can go to school. We don't have to work most of the day just to stay in a company-owned home with the fear of crime and pay about 50% back to the company. We were poor in Italy. We didn't have all this in Italy. Italy will always be the place where I was born, and I love the good old days. But America is our home. It is your home, and your family made sacrifices so that your father, you, and your brother could have all the good things. So that's from my good friend, Mike Matteo, who's a middle school principal here in Utah, where I live. That is his story that he shared with me about how his family came to America. Loved it. It, Lydia, you mentioned this. uh, When the immigrants came through Ellis Island, there was no 100% guarantee that they were going to be able to stay. Do you know what percentage of immigrants came that were, for various reasons, not allowed to stay and had to go back to their own countries? Yes, it's only 2%, only 2%. And here's what's amazing about America is that we welcome these immigrants. And if they were sick because they got sick on the trip, on on that long two-week voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, we actually built a hospital on Ellis Island to take care of those sick people. And if we cured them, if we were able to get them back on their feet again, then we let them go back with their family and enter into America. So sometimes their wife and children had to wait (laughs) on Ellis Island waiting for their family member, you know, if it was their dad, for example, to get better before they could leave the island and go on to the mainland into America. If they had a dreaded, a terrible disease, a dreaded disease that was incurable, like uh, he mentioned trachoma, which was a, a horrible eye disease, then if it was incurable, then that's where, unfortunately, that person would not be allowed admission into America because we didn't want that disease here and would have to go back on the ship, back to their homeland. But again, that was only 2% of the people most of the time. Most of the stories are one of beautiful stories of reunion, where these family members could meet with their relatives who had gone to America before them, husbands and wives that had been parted, maybe, uh, hugging and kissing each other for the first time in years because the husband went to America before his family to find a place to live, to work to be able to provide for his family and pay for their trip to America. And so that reunion had to have been happy, possibly lovers, you know, you know, my boyfriend went to America and now I get to go and I get to see him. And, you know, it was kind of a bittersweet place. (laughs) Sweet because so many reunions and so many beginnings of stories of these people coming to America And so anyway, so those are two amazing stories of immigrants. We want to ask our listeners, why did their ancestors come to America and their own parents, grandparents or great or great, great grandparents? We're asking them to find out why they came to America. And the other question is, if they did not come here by choice, 
then why did they stay? And I love that one because I know, yes, we can talk about the slave trade and many African-Americans came here not by their choice at all. And that's horrible. Again, America stands for everyone having the unalienable right, meaning the God-given right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So why then stay We can get into some discussion at some future show about Abraham Lincoln and others that we're looking into. How do we, maybe some of these African-Americans want to go back to Africa, but many, for instance, Frederick Douglass, he was encouraging Abraham Lincoln, hey, there are many of us who want to be a part of this great American experiment of freedom and liberty and opportunity for everyone. So, so yeah. We do invite you, listeners, to find out your own family roots. Why did your ancestors come here to America? And if they came here not by choice, why did they stay? Why are they still here? And that would be fascinating to find out. And Lydia, didn't most of the immigrants, either in that time period or even as I see it as a teacher, when they come to America, they are very concerned that their children receive an education? Yeah, that's huge because think about it. So many in those other countries, their whole purpose of life was to work the land so they could have enough to pay taxes to whoever owned the land and have enough potatoes or pork or beef or flax or whatever they they grew, enough left over that they could subsist. And so they couldn't afford to have their kids go to school for the time, just for the sake of time. You you can't let go of your kids. They're they're the ones that help you work the land and so that you can eat because you got to eat or they weren't rich enough. They weren't part of the aristocracy that could afford to hire teachers to teach their children. So we're very blessed in this country where everyone has opportunity of having a free public education, although it's really not free because we all pay taxes. Well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us pay taxes so that all of us can receive free public education and be able to learn to read and write and do numbers, which is huge. That's called literacy. And literacy is really important for us to have in order to preserve liberty. How come? And Lydia, let me give our listeners a quote from our third president and our first president that helped establish a college, which is Thomas Jefferson. And please then comment, what more is necessary to make us happy and a prosperous people? Still one thing, fellow citizens, a wise and frugal government, which shall restrain men from injuring one another which shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of the labor of bread it has earned. Yeah, can you imagine living overseas during the time of when we had those 12 million people coming to America through Ellis Island up to the 1954 year period that you'd work so hard And you had to give much of what you earned back to the government or or whoever was ruling at the time. You know, many kings, and and we maybe laugh at this, and even when we're kids play this, you know, we, we play king of the hill. And everyone else is kind of beholden to you as the ruler, as the king. And the king looked at 
the people as his subjects and the land as his land and all that was on the land, the cattle, the fences, the, the fields, the homes as his. And so the people too had the mentality of we work to support our king, long live the king. And often taxes were huge. You hear the story of Robin Hood, you know, the the king at the time of Robin Hood taxed the people so much that we had Robin Hood come to try to take from the rich to give to the poor so they could pay the taxes and not be sent to the dungeon because they couldn't pay the taxes. And and so what Thomas Jefferson was saying is if we want to be a happy and a prosperous people, what is necessary is to have a wise and a frugal government which keeps everybody, keeps us, keeps others from hurting us from obtaining prosperity. And that government should also leave us as the people free to pursue whatever industry we want and make improvements how, how we want. Of course, we need to be responsible with that freedom to make those improvements um, and not take from us what we've earned. Now, obviously, we want to help pay for police, fire departments, schools, etc. But it should be minimal. It shouldn't be for whoever's governing us, their own personal. We shouldn't be paying taxes for whatever personal interests they have, or political interests they have, or, or whatnot. It should be something that, like I said, for police, for our fire department, hospitals, education, so that it it blesses everybody. So that's in essence what Thomas Jefferson was teaching. And so, Lydia, as we wrap up, please invite all of our listeners, please. We want to invite everyone from 8 to 108 to keep listening to the We the Kids radio show and to hear more Forgotten American stories and learn more principles of freedom that establish freedom in America because we all have the responsibility, whether you're 8 to 108, to preserve freedom. So also check out the We the Kids website on wethekids.us and purchase your own copy of Forgotten American Stories Celebrating America's Constitution on the wethekids.us website or on forgottenamericanstories.org. So thank you so much for supporting We the Kids, and let's see what the We the Kids Liberty Player kids are up to. Hi, kids. I'm Daniel, a We the Kids Liberty Player. Remember in last week's episode... Jack and Henry were studying about General Ulysses S. Grant and were amazed to look up and discover the general standing under a nearby tree. They were able to ask General Grant a number of questions, but then their mom called them and they had to go home. Today they're reading about General Grant again in American historian William Federer's book, American Minute. Here's what they're reading. Hiram Ulysses S. Grant was born April 27, 1822, to a Methodist family in Ohio. He did not like the initials H-U-G, so he rearranged them to U-H-G. When he was nominated at age 17 for a position at West Point, Congressman Thomas Hammer mistakenly wrote the H as an S, thinking it stood for Grant's mother's maiden name, Simpson. With the name U.S. Grant, he attended West Point, where he excelled in horsemanship, setting an equestrian high-jumping record that lasted for nearly 25 years. Wait! Wait, there he is again. And I see Jack and Henry out there with the general. And I think they're asking him some more questions. What happened when General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse? When General Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, he essentially ended the war. 
There were other Confederate armies in the field. He did not order all Confederate soldiers to lay down their arms, but they surrendered as soon as they got the information that General Lee had surrendered. So after the parole slips were signed by the soldiers there at Appomattox Courthouse, they all began their walk home. Now, they could also take United States military transportation on roads and steamboats. That's one of the reasons that they had a parole slip, because when they showed that to railroad conductor or a steamboat captain that was a military railroad or steamboat, they were able to ride free to get home. But most walked home. What else would you ask of me? How brutal did the war get exactly? The war got as brutal as it is possible to get and exceeded your wildest imagination. The destructive power of the weapons is indescribable. Exploding shells, ripping people apart, rifled weapons, which made the rifles far more range to them, greater speed and more accuracy. So the destructive power to the human body is beyond description. And it was a horror story to even think of what happened to soldiers wounded in combat in the war. Also, millions upon millions of dollars of property damage resulted because war is indeed total when it goes through an area. And the South was essentially devastated by the war. But to ask the question, uh, how bad did it get? It got as bad as you could imagine and probably 10 times worse. Another question I was warning about, what do you think would have happened if the South won the war? I can't conjecture about that. Since it didn't happen, I cannot venture an opinion on that. You know, because if they won, slavery would have continued, and who knows what would have happened. We probably, right? Because the South was fighting for slavery, and that was the whole point. Yes. So what I'm guessing is that the South would have won. Maybe another president would have come and stopped it. But I'm sure slavery would have gotten bigger and bigger. I can't speak to that. That would be conjecture on my part. Mm, Okay. How did the North win the war? It won the war through superior numbers and a superior industrial base. And the South, conversely, lost the war because they didn't have an industrial base. And the blockade of the South became very effective. So the South couldn't bring in the supplies that they could not make for example, weapons and medical supplies. At the same time, they were exhausting what medical supplies that they had, and they didn't have a a strong industrial base to make more weapons. And that's just one facet. It's not appropriate to say the North won simply through superior numbers, more men. That certainly was a tremendous advantage, but it was dogged determination to the cause and learning on the job of how to be effective soldiers and effective military leadership that ultimately, after three years into the last year of the war, manifested itself in superior leadership combined with superior forces fighting against depleting forces and depleting supplies for the South. Can we meet again and ask more questions? We certainly may meet again and you ask more questions of me. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope that our paths cross again soon and often. Be about your business. Thank you. 
Kids, please come back next week when we ask General Grant more questions about the Civil War. Until then, goodbye. We want to invite everyone from 8 to 108 to listen and please join us on We The Kids radio show and to hear more forgotten stories. Learn the principles of freedom that establish unprecedented freedom in America so that we can all, whether we're 8 or 108, preserve our freedom. 